Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Warning. This podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spook. Girls, true crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you Hey, Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I am joined with my ghoul friend, Jessica. Wingapo, everyone. Wingapo. Wingapo. And today we are bringing you another mysterious celebrity death. We are going to be talking about Kurt Cobain today. And as you can see by the title, this is actually going to be coming in two parts for you because once again, at least for me, I don't know if this was like how it was for you, but it was like Brittany Murphy where I was like, okay, there'll be plenty of content, but I didn't know there was going to be this (laughs) much content. (laughs) So here we are. (laughs) At least now we've had the forethought to be like, we should just make it a two part. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I like we were talking about it and I was like not even done with my notes yet. And I told Jessica, I was like, yeah, no, we got to do two parts. (laughs) It's going to be forever. Oh, God. But anyways, if you are new here, hello and welcome. We are so happy to have you checking out the show and returning spooksters. Welcome back as always. If you would like to hang out with us on social media. Everything is in the show notes below. I have a link tree for you. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle for that is at Three Spooked Girls. Jessica and I also have TikToks that you can check out as well. And we have an amazing Facebook group where Jessica and I hang out in a lot. So if you'd like to interact with us on a more personal level and join book club, join sometimes watch parties and, uh, you know, get announcements early or first, that's usually where they're at. Definitely head over there. And if you'd like to support the show, you can head to patreon.com backslash three spooked girls, or you can go in the link tree as well. For as little as a dollar, you get one bonus episode a month. We have some free ones out there for
for you that you can check out if you want to see what that's like. It's on Patreon. Or if you scroll back in our feed, the Elise Poller was a public release from one of our all-tier episodes. Format's a little different most of the time, but it's a lot of fun. And two and up get Jessica's amazing Slaughters series, and that is twice a month. The first one's kind of like a fun, ambiguous guess what episode. And if you guess correctly, you get some kind of fun swag that uh, she puts a lot of work into. And then the second one is a amazing recap that she does on her movies. That's right over there. And what's cool is it's not just like, you know, spooky or true crimey movies. She does other movies that are fun or like that are themed with the month. So like for, you know, Valentine's Day, there's like a theme going on. And then March is we have National Women's Day. So we got plans for that. So definitely check it out. It's literally one of my favorite things ever. And on top of that, for new $2 patrons, we have a brand new Slaughter's sticker that you can get. This is only for new patrons. So two or higher tiers, you will now get this in your swag. So definitely check it out. And Five and Up starts video content for you. We have an extra Facebook group that we do a live stream in at the end of each month. And then you also get my video series that's once a month. It's Haunted Grounds. It is a coffee recommendation. Coffee Talk has inspired me to do some fancy stuff. So, you know, there's that. Or just like whatever I'm drinking that month that I think you guys should try. And on top of that, I also talk about a haunted, possessed, cursed object of sorts. At this point, I've done the Bassano vase. I've done the Tallman bunk beds, the Busby stoop chair. I've done Peggy the doll, all kinds of cool spooky things. So definitely check it out. And then up from there, we have all kinds of other cool perks for you. So head on over to Patreon to check that out. But before we continue on forward, we are going to take a quick promo break and we will be right back. Hello, I'm Lindsay, and I'm Rebecca, and we're the hosts of the I, I Have, Have a, a Strange, Strange Story podcast. podcast. We didn't do it. Well, we'll see. <laughs> Listen in as we retell your personal paranormal stories. We've got Bigfoot, we've got aliens, we've got skinwalkers, and we've got movie references. Listen in every week as we retell your paranormal stories with comedy, cussing, and class. And sometimes coffee, and sometimes cats, and sometimes beer or wine, and sometimes cats in trash cans. Okay. (laughs) Catch us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Bye. Bye. All right. Well, welcome back, guys. I'm going to hand it over to Jess to tell us what our drink is this week. So I went to the Pinterest, because you know that's where I find my shit. In my stuff. Mm-hmm. And I typed in like Kurt Cobain cocktails. And then I was like, okay, that's like way too like specific. So then I typed in like grunge cocktails because I thought like, oh, that will be more. Yeah. So I found this one. It's called Loser. It's from a bar called Brother Cleave in Boston. Mm. And I did not read it before I picked it. <laughs> so it has whiskey in it. It has Pepsi. It has Jägermeister. Oof. It has beef broth okay yeah espresso liquor and then like bitterman's hellfire habanero shrub 
I think they're bitters. And it's garnished with either beef jerky or a Slim Jim. Okay, I think it's one of those. I know you're like being skeptical. I think it's one of those you got to like, you know how they say with makeup, trust the process. Yeah. I feel like it's a trust the process type of thing because I do like Bloody Marys that have like bacon and stuff like that in them. So I ain't going to hate on the beef jerky. Okay, that I don't hate on. The beef jerky or the Slim Jim, I'm fine with. It's the beef broth. You know, I bet it's one of those things where it's like, it's not like crazy flavor. Like, it's just kind of like enriches it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like it's one of those things that aren't like super strong, especially considering the liquor in there. It is only like a half ounce. Yeah. So there's like two ounces of whiskey, an ounce of Pepsi, three fourths ounces of Jaeger, a half ounce of beef broth, a fourth ounce of espresso liquor, liqueur. Yeah, that's going to be really strong. And then there's habanero on top of it. Somebody try it and tell us because I'm not. (laughs) Yes. I was, but at first I was like, oh, okay. I see you there. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, that's amazing. That'll be on our Pinterest now or on socials tomorrow. So check that out. Also, really quickly before I jump into this, <laughs> I had said a couple episodes back that the P.O. Box was going away because I was moving. JK, guys, we're staying in Alaska, so the P.O. Box is not going anywhere. So just letting you know, in case anybody cared, P.O. Box is staying. Matt got a job opportunity here. So we're hanging out in Alaska because we like it. And I know people are like, oh, my God, you're fucking nuts. But we like it. So anyways, yes, P.O. Box is staying. I mean, for like two seconds, she was like, we might move near you. And I was like, greatest day of my life. And then she's like, just kidding. We're staying in Alaska. And I'm like, I hate you. But I love you all at the same time. It's all good. It's all good. Got my heart all happy. I know. I'm sorry. Crushed it. But like compared to other places I've lived, this is like technically the closest in a while. It's true. And we have seen each other more since you moved to Alaska. Yeah. Than when you <laughs> lived in the lower 48. Right. It's crazy. But anyways. All right. So today with Kurt Cobain. So how this two-parter is going to work is I am going to be taking the reins on this episode. I have background up through death of Kurt. And then in part two, Jessica will be discussing, you know, the things she likes to discuss, <laughs> the theories and sketchiness and I guess just conspiracy theories, all the crazy. There's a lot of chaos with this case. Let's just let's just say that for sure. So Kurt Cobain was born on February 20th, 1967 in Aberdeen, Washington to Wendy and Donald Cobain. He was the first grandchild and was said by his mom and other family that even as a young child, he was a people magnet. And in home videos, honestly, he was super cute. He was always blowing kisses to the camera, waving, smiling, just the most adorable little thing ever. And in terms of his personality, it was said that he was like very nurturing at a young age and there was actually one home video of him I can't remember who he was with but like he was like are you okay are you okay because I don't know if like the person fell or we're just like messing around and pretending to but very concerned little toddler and it was so cute And he also got into music at a super young age. Others in his extended family did have musical backgrounds. So it was said that he started singing more and more around the age of two. So kind of like once he started talking and whatnot. And at four, he actually started playing the piano and would write songs about going to the park and just like, you know, other little things that four-year-olds are doing. I thought that was really cute. Also in his toddler years, he was said to have started dabbling into art as well. He liked to draw TV characters and 
and, you know, other things he was into at the time. His grandma was actually an artist, so she was, like, super all about this and just, like, really hyped that he was interested in it. Now, it was said that Kurt had a regular slash happy childhood until his parents got divorced, which happened when he was nine years old. And he also has a younger sister. They would be split. So after the divorce, Kurt stayed with Wendy and his sister went with Donald. And what's interesting with this is that Wendy says this isn't totally the case, but like, honestly, what I got from the whole situation when I saw with them, they kind of blamed each other for different things. You know, they both did shitty things, like, let's be honest. And, you know, when Wendy's talking about it, she says that Dawn couldn't handle having kids and, you know, responsibilities. So that's why they got divorced and said that he would belittle and ridicule Kurt and that that obviously really affects a child and sticks with him, which I can definitely see. And if you know anything about him, like, as his life goes on, like, you can definitely see that. Wendy recalls Kurt being super busy all the time and, quote, hyperactive. Wendy and Donald, on their own, they would each get remarried eventually and have more children of their own. Wendy said that when she wanted to try and get Kurt to, quote, calm down before the baby she was going to have came, she took him to the doctor and he ended up giving him Ritalin. And she said it just made him even more hyperactive. And, like, whoever can correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, if that happens, doesn't that mean, like, you shouldn't be on it to start with or something? Like, that's, like, a super red flag, obviously. Basically, Wendy was suggesting and the doctor suggested, like, he had ADHD, but if he did, I'm assuming, like, he wouldn't still be acting like that if he was on, like, the proper dose and stuff. Well, I mean, I think it comes down to, like, chemically. Yeah. Like, even if you have ADD or ADHD and you get on that medication, it's not guaranteed to help you. Right. For some kids, it's, like, essentially giving them speed. Right, which was what she said was, like, his case with it, pretty much. So as many children do in a, you know, weird, confusing, and sometimes hurtful time in their lives when parents get divorced, Kurt began to act out. And there actually came a point when Wendy took her over to Donald and was like, here, you deal with him because I can't. I'm done. I'm out. Goodbye. Paraphrasing, obviously, but that's basically what happened. Now, at the time, Dawn had a girlfriend named Jenny, and for some reason, which I'm like, I don't agree with this as a parent, but, like, he told Kurt that he would never get remarried. I'm like, I don't know. I just feel like, I don't know. But what happens? He marries Jenny, which isn't as a, you know, objective adult looking into this. Obviously, like, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, especially at first, because, like, things were all good with the family at first, but trouble started up once again when Don and Jenny had their first child together. It was said that Kurt began to bully his siblings and others at school and things, you know, kind of got bad. And Jenny says that honestly, after this, she blames herself fully for what comes next because she had told Don that he needed to get out of the house because she couldn't handle it. And from what I was watching, I truly do believe that she regrets not trying to push through it to help Kurt because like, obviously looking back at it all these years later, you could tell she knows like, obviously he needed that during this time. And it was just like, it's sad because after this, he would end up bouncing around quite a bit from like family member to family member to friends just because like eventually, you know, he'd start doing shit and people didn't want to deal with it. Right. 
I mean, this was happening, what, in, like, the late 70s, early 80s, mm-hmm. and we didn't really, as a society, we didn't focus on, like, what was happening in the home is what was creating children. Yeah. Um, that's not something that really started happening until, like, the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. I think if someone had just taken the time to really sit down with him and be like, what's going on with you? Like, really, what's going on with you? He he was articulate enough. Yeah. And extremely articulate you know even as a kid he'd probably be able to tell you like what was going on Mm -hmm. but to take up for jenny's side like she was a new mom there was like a melting of families i don't think his dad don was very like attentive so it was probably like all on her and she probably was just in self-preservation mode like I, i can't handle this right yeah and i'm not like personally i'm not blaming her either you know as a human there's only so much shit you can take you know so it's like it's a lot of different stressors at once so i get that i completely get that right and she probably couldn't reach out to like a school counselor or someone like that Uh for help because they weren't necessarily they weren't equipped with what we know now to be able to help like if this was happening today there would be more of an intervention that could happen for him right well and on top of like all of this too like he was also being bullied at school because like as i'll get into it with his other friends that he ends up having but at one point he had this one friend who was gay and in turn Kurt got bullied for that because, you know, people are stupid. And basically he, you know, he was just like, I don't know. He was just like, I don't really give a shit. I don't care. Like, I'm not. But like, <laughs> I was reading other interviews. He's like, I wish I was, but I'm not. It's <laughs> like, oh, it's just like the point I'm making is he was pretty much getting shit on everywhere. So, you know, it's just tough really fucking hurting so obviously like this kid he is starts to get into trouble with alcohol drugs all of that you know he didn't have anybody to help him cope properly with all these hard things in his life so that's that's what he did that's all he had you know and it's just like it's one of those things where it's like obviously we know it's the wrong thing but it's like you can't really put too much blame on him because he's like 14 15 years old Mm mm-hmm shit, you're going to look for the easy way out, you know? It's not like an adult looking at this type of thing, so. Right. And this was at the time where, like, if a kid was acting out, it was the kid's issue. It wasn't, like, a family issue. Right. So if he's acting out or he's being bullied at school, so he in turn takes that pain and bullies his siblings, like, they're not going to be like, what's going on with you at school? Yeah. Or what's going on in your life that's triggering this? They're just going to be like, you're a fucking little shit. Mm -hmm. And, like, I mean, I don't know like I'm trying to think back in the documentaries I've watched I don't know if there was some sort of like physical discipline not that I read Mm -mm. I don't think there was really any kind of that at all Mm -mm. a discipline at all I think it was more like they would just yell at him and then nothing would happen and nothing would get resolved yeah pretty much Just something kind of heartbreaking you hear if you watch stuff about Kurt is that pretty much everyone who was interviewed in the documentaries and stuff I watched said that all he wanted was a family. That's all he wanted. And it's true because he's even been noted saying about all of this, like later on, they were asking him about his like, you know, younger years. And he says, quote, I remember feeling ashamed for some reason. I was ashamed of my parents. I couldn't face some of my friends at school anymore because I desperately wanted to have the classic, you know, typical family mother father i wanted that security so i resented my parents for quite a few years because of that end quote so like obviously he knows like looking back he was hurting because he was like what the fuck you know
know. So when Kurt was in eighth grade, so like, you know, 14 or so, he actually ended up going back to Wendy's. It was said that this is when he started experimenting with pot for the first time. And he said that he used this to avoid, quote, feelings and nervous breakdowns, end quote. Off the bat, there's two documentaries that I highly suggest if this case intrigues you and you have not watched them. One is Soaked in Bleach and the other is Montage of Heck. They go hand in hand, in my opinion. Watch Montage of Heck first, then watch Soaked in Bleach because like for the timeline wise and like how the case goes, that makes the most sense. Because with Montage of Heck, you get the background, you get the highlights, and you get honestly, like in my opinion, the actual like dark reality of Kurt's personal life. It really humanizes him very well, in my opinion. Also in this, there's tons of like recordings, such as like, you know, voice recordings from interviews. There's home videos, photos of his notebooks, things like that. So like, that's always really interesting to see, you know, like that's so much more informative than just reenactments. It was really well done. Mm hmm. There is this interview he did, and he talks about how he originally, you know, once, like, he got in this rebellious stage, he became friends with the burnouts, basically. And that, you know, these kids were trouble, and he's like, I fucking did it too. It's not like I was some angel, whatever. And he talks about this incident where they would go to this girl's house who he described as being, like, in special ed. They didn't really say, like, what was the actual situation going on with her exactly. But basically, they would go over there, and they would steal booze from the basement and things like that. He says that things got worse with Wendy, his mom, so he would act out more and more, and that at this time in his teenage years, yeah. Yes, he did want to kill himself. So with that, he decided that he wanted to have sex before that happened because he was a virgin. So he went over to that girl's house. He approached her and things were about to happen, but then shit just got like uncomfortable, basically. Um, I won't go into all the details of that, but it talks about it in Montage of Heck more like he did an interview or something. There's a recording of him telling this story. It was very in-depth. And if you want to know, watch the documentary because it's he tells it exactly what happens. <laughs> yeah. So basically, like the quick note version is like, she was like, gonna let it happen. And she's like, I had sex plenty of times, whatnot, blah, blah, blah. But then he ended up bailing. Anyway, I think he had said also like the dad came home and he got caught or something or like, I could be wrong on that. I could be thinking of something else because like different case or something. But anyway, he left. And this is when he decided like, okay, it's the time. I do not want to live anymore. So he said that he laid on the train tracks with two cement cylinder blocks on him and waited for the 11 p.m. train. But it ended up coming by on the other sets of tracks, not the one he was on. So that was the only reason why he lived. And he said that this moment kind of gave him this jolt, essentially, and he started to, in his words, rehabilitate himself. But pretty much that he still hated everybody. So he said after this point, he kind of remained a loner. Word did get out about the sex thing, so or almost sex thing. So he got really bullied and ridiculed for that. And that was kind of like what pushed him to the train tracks. But so after that, he's like, fuck everybody pretty much at this point. But things would change as we arrived to 1985 and he drops 
out of school. So, like I said, music was a big part of Kurt's life early on. On his 14th birthday, his dad gave him the option of a bike or a used guitar, and he chose the guitar. He started playing it. He started writing more, like writing songs, things like that. He also started running in the circles of musicians after dropping out or like right before, basically. There was this local band called the Melvins, and this is how Kurt began to build a social circle and was also introduced to punk rock which he said he instantly resonated with. He had been given some tapes by one of his friends since there was they said there was no punk rock available in their local like record shops and music shops because if you don't know Aberdeen's like a small logging town so like you know more rural and stuff which reminded me of like our area so I was like oh I bet our area was the same way during that time (laughs) (laughs) so from here this launches more into the music scene so like I said 1985 this is when he dropped out of school the band Fecal Matter (laughs) was born they have like a bunch of crazy names like please watch I know I'm gonna mention these documentaries a lot but like seriously please fucking watch them please watch them They created a homemade tape of some songs with the drummer, actually, from the Melvins, the dude he was friends with. His name was Dale Crover. He played bass. And then a guy named Greg Hawkinson played the drums. When he was, like, hanging out around the Melvins and stuff like that, this is when he would meet Chris Novoselic. Just if you know Nirvana, you know who the fuck I'm talking about. Let's just say that. Okay, okay, cool. Moving on. (laughs) Don't be mean, people. Don't be mean. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, at first, Kurt kept like on and on and on being like, you need to play with me. You should be in my band, you know, da da da. And Chris is like, "Mm, nah, I'm good. But eventually, he'd obviously come around to say yes. No spoilers there. So essentially, like the early days of Nirvana began. And if you don't know who Nirvana is. Get out. Do you live under a rock? Like, who the fuck are you? Have you been <laughs> in a Hot Topic ever? Right. I mean, I feel like even if that's not your kind of music, you at least know that artwork. I mean, I think Nirvana is probably the most recognized name. Oh, yeah. Like, I think people, like, when you're looking at genres of music, mm-hmm. or you're not even genres, when you're looking at generations of music. Yes. That definitely is the quintessential, like, Generation X band, so. Totally, totally. Now, like I said, they they went through like tons and tons of names. It was basically like they'd pick a name and then Kurt would be like, I'm over this or no, that's not right. So they change it a lot. <laughs> like literally, I think it was like they said like 20 or 30 names like they like their list of shit they'd went through. It was crazy. He was just like rattling them off like pen cap chew and we were this and then we were bliss. And then I'm like, what the f-? like <laughs> now I totally understand what Mouse Rat in Parks and Rec. It was totally an homage to uh Nirvana. And I'm sure a lot of bands were like this, but this was like so like these weren't like normal names. Mm-hmm. Like Pin Cap Chew is like a totally weird ass name for a band. <laughs> and like I'm trying to think of like being a fan, like, yeah, oh my God, did you go to like insert playing event space here? Like, you know, did you go to Ace of Spades and see Pin Cap Chew and be like, no. <laughs> pin-? Like, I don't know. Oh God, yeah. No, it's funny though. And while they're doing their hunter name changes, they are playing like small shows. They're still regular people at this point. They're still, you know, balancing regular life to get by. So at first, Kurt was in this like super tiny and described by people who knew him uh, kind of sketchy apartment, but it was his. And that was like what was important to him. He was out. He was doing his own thing. He wasn't having to deal with his parents, you know. And at this time, he was working as a handyman and also a janitor. He would meet a girl named Tracy 
Miranda. And they had met at a party and apparently she developed a crush on him and was like, I like that dude. And he was just a typical teen boy and like fucking clueless pretty much. So Tracy said that like one of their friends had to be like, "Uh, no, dude, Tracy fucking likes you. Hello, wake up. And she said that she fell for him because he was funny and they always had a good time together. And she said that she really encouraged him to pursue his music because it was what he was passionate about. And eventually, they would move in together in her place in Olympia. And at this point, he would stop working and be creating full-time while Tracy worked. When asked about his personality and their relationship and all that, she said she didn't think he couldn't accept love. She thought he could, but he was afraid of getting hurt. She did note that with, like, his health and stuff, he would have violent dreams often, and this kind of was around the time he started having severe stomach issues, such as nausea, severe stomach aches, diarrhea, things like that, essentially, like, GI issues. And some, when I was, like, reading up on this more, they, like, it's never, like, fully said to the public, like, what was going on with him, but some think, like, maybe it was Crohn's or some kind of, like, gluten intolerance, allergy, like, something like that really fucking up with him because, like, you have to think, like, he's a teen and they're also, like, on a tight budget. They're not eating the healthiest, you know, type of thing on top of that. So if he has like a gluten allergy or something like and they're living off pizza, that's not a good uh, combination. Right. Like hamburger helper is cheap. And I think that's kind of like where people think about like anyone who's on like a tight budget. Like you think back to college. That's why people eat ramen because it's like 38 cents a pack. Right. By 1987, Kurt was essentially, quote, self-medicating with heroin. But Tracy says, like, she never saw him doing it in the apartment or anything like that. And that he didn't really act, like, weird too much around her. But also around this time, the band started getting more shows, started traveling a bit more and would be gone. They'd, like, go to Texas. Like, they went up, like, to a bunch of, like, different areas, kind of, like, on the west side of the U.S., And so with that and with those stressors and stuff, like, they began fighting more and he would not come home as much. So she's like, yeah, looking back, like, I guess that makes sense because he was probably off doing drugs or whatever. But eventually they would break up. And, of course, as they're touring and whatnot, they slowly are getting more traction. And something we learn during this time, this is before, still before they make it big, is that Kurt takes criticism and trash talk to heart. Very much so. Like, super to heart. Like, he takes it super personally. Which, like, I can sympathize with. Like, obviously, we are nowhere near that kind of attention they got. And, like, at that point, they weren't nirvana. You know what I mean? But, like, here's the thing, what I'm saying from, like, our aspect. We put out content into the world where people can and sometimes are mean for no reason versus, you know, giving helpful, constructive criticism. And, you know, we're all human. Like, you take that to heart sometimes. And I feel like the reason for me is, like, a lot of times people forget not just celebrities, but also, like, content creators because we are content creators, you know, influencers, other people like that. Like, we're all still human. And I feel like some people... I don't know. They think like once you start creating content, you have this magic switch to turn off your emotions. And that's just not true. It's not. Oh, I totally understand. Because like sometimes things are funny and people say things and you're just like, oh, well, like you don't really know me or like, oh, you don't like how my voice sounds or you don't like how I talk or you don't like the words I use. And then sometimes people are just like mean. I mean, thank God Tara and I have each other because we both know that being human can lead to you snapping back at people. And we make it a a point to not like we work really hard to not fire back 
when people say comments that can hurt our feelings. And sometimes people don't even realize they're hurting our feelings. They think there's constructive criticism in it. But really what they're saying is, I know more about you than you and you need to change to be me. And so I totally get how Kurt would feel like someone saying something and you've put your heart and soul into it. And then they're like, "Mm, this is just not good enough for me. It's you kind of want to be like, fuck you, asshole. Like, yeah, it's I mean, just to kind of use like TikTok as like that sounding board. It's like when people leave mean comments on your TikTok and then you go look to see who they are and they, they don't have content. It's like you don't even have enough guts to do what I'm doing, but you have enough guts to criticize me for what I'm doing. So being a content creator has really changed how I look at people. Oh, yeah, for sure. And like, that was my whole point, because obviously, like celebrity versus content creator, like obviously those are two different things. But like, that's my whole point. It doesn't matter if you have a podcast, a channel, a TikTok, an album, a movie, whatever, whatever you're putting into the world, people who are in a creative space of any kind. It's something that starts as like a passion project or a hobby and, you know, just like you put so much effort into it, you know, whether it's like you're getting honestly, whether you're getting paid for it or not, it means a lot to the person making it. So I could just totally sympathize. So like, anyway, I'm gonna get off that soapbox. But I was just like, damn, I fucking I can understand. I can understand. Because like what pissed me off was like sometimes, especially Courtney would just be like, oh, he's just too sensitive and can't do anything for himself. And it's like, no, he's just fucking human. Like, Jesus Christ. But anyways, moving on. So they had gotten (laughs) the whole reason I'm talking about this is they had gotten a not so nice review from a magazine in Michigan. And Chris said like it really, really got to Kurt because it was like ripping into them and Kurt didn't like being embarrassed or anything like that so it just really fucked with him the other two guys were just like you know come on Kurt it's fine like what the fuck does somebody in fucking Michigan know like fuck them you know like that kind of thing I can see it both sides because like Jessica and I have done both sides of those kind of situations before. So just like very relatable in that sense, which I just like I never thought I'd have that sentence coming out of my mouth about Nirvana, but it did. <laughs> right. Um. So obviously I'm not going to give like the whole breakdown on Nirvana's journey and all that. But basically their album Nevermind with Smells Like Teen Spirit is what catapulted them into this like crazy fame that happened so fucking quick when it happened. Like, Like, obviously, they'd been playing for years at this point, but it's like when that dropped and that started getting traction, it was like, boom, famous. And this happened in 91, the year I was born. You old as Nirvana. (laughs) I am. I am, apparently. (laughs) So, again, you see tons of interview footage in Montage of Heck, and it's just really interesting because, like I said, it just really helps humanize him. And there's this one interview that stuck out to me, and he's essentially saying that he could feel the judgment, you know, 24-7 and all this pressure. And he's like, honestly, it would not be worth it if I did not like playing. He's like, but I love playing, so this is worth it to me. He's like, we did not want to be famous. We just wanted to play music. And this theme of a, quote, regular family or classic family starts to come up again. As we are now into the 90s, both Kurt and Chris are talking, you know, they want to build a home. They want to have a family of their own, like, you know, each, things like that. And Chris had met somebody during this time that he was getting kind of serious with. And Kurt met somebody as well. 
Q and Courtney love. And Kurt and Courtney would get married February 24th, 1992. So if you don't know who Courtney Love is, quick rundown for her. She was also part of the music scene and was in a band called Hole. She was the lead singer and she was way into drugs, just like Kurt. And obviously, this just makes a recipe for disaster. Now, apparently, Kurt had canceled a whole tour of what was originally reported to be health problems, quote, quote. But it ended up being that he wanted to stay in his apartment with Courtney, do heroin, just paint, play guitar, chill out, things like that. And I just thought it was so funny because like they talked to her about this and she was like, oh, he did give up a tour. I'm like, bitch, you fucking knew. Um, But again, you see a lot of home videos and honestly, a lot of them, they are like fucking high off their minds. They are faded as fuck. And to me, it's not even me being like a negative bitch about it. It's honestly heartbreaking to see. It really is. It just gives you that scary side of someone being addicted to like hard drugs. And the couple would have one child together. Her name is Frances Bean Cobain. She was born August 18th, 1992. And her middle name Bean, which I was kind of like, oh, that's such a celebrity thing to do. But like, it's not like how some people name their kids like Apple and shit. It was they literally chose that as her middle name because before they knew she was a girl, that's what they called the baby. They called it bean i was like that's actually kind of sweet that's really cute yeah so they're like you know the bean our bean you know blah 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 so that's how francis got her middle name and controversial it is reported that courtney did do drugs during her pregnancy and that she was actually high as shit during delivery so much so that she didn't even realize what was going on and that francis was born addicted to heroin oh my god which is heartbreaking i just oh my god as a mom as a human i'm just like oh my god an innocent baby that has no control over anything like that breaks my heart so much and because they are celebrities and you know the level of celebrity kurt is most of their you know fucking personal life is out in the media and cps was actually brought in and right away francis was given to courtney's sister temporarily because obviously with this kind of thing courtney and kurt were deemed unfit parents now what's interesting is when you watch interviews with like courtney and stuff she tries to be like when i found out i was pregnant i just stopped and then later she's like well maybe i slipped up like once or twice but like i was young and i wasn't worried about it and da 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 and it's like okay but it's not about you It's about the baby, but okay. Right. So fucking selfish. Jesus. Like, I guess it's like one thing for her to say that if this was a quote from like in 92, but this is not. This is a quote from like 2018 or whenever the fuck this documentary was like years later, you know? So I'm just like, what the fuck, dude? I feel like, I don't know, at that point, especially like, you know, if you've gotten your act together and stuff, you should be able to like look it back and be like, yeah, I fucked up. Like, own up to your shit. And honestly, I think once Francis was born, though, um, on the other hand, for Kurt, like, things changed, you know, for him. Because he said he was willing to give up everything. He was willing to give up the fame, the music, rock and roll, everything, because he didn't want Francis to end up fucked up, is what he said. He wanted to put her first. And obviously the couple, they would go through some hoops to get Francis back, which included, you know, submitting like urine samples to make sure they were clean and things like that. But I'm assuming like obviously once they got her and got in the clear, there was no follow up or if there was like an extra probationary period, eventually that stopped because drugs would absolutely come back into play. 
Now, apparently, there was also supposed to be a book written about Nirvana, and it caused, like, all this drama because I mentioned this stuff with Frances, like, her birth. It was in Vanity, and essentially, that author was who was going to write the book. So it caused, like, all this drama and all this shit with Courtney and Kurt and stuff. So there's a voicemail from Kurt essentially threatening the author and being like, back the fuck off and da-da-da-da-da. And because, like, in my opinion, he was extremely loyal, probably to a fault to Courtney because it was, you know, his wife. And I feel like even if he knew shit was like not great, he was still defending her and sticking up for her. And also like when you're in this position and you have like, I don't think Kurt was blind to the fact that they had a drug problem. Like I think he knew and acknowledged it. And it probably was like a really hard thing, especially because all he's ever wanted is a family. And then he's presented with a child that he is ready to love unconditionally and give that life to. And then to have CPS come in and take the baby away, like that had to be a huge reality check. And then to have someone come for them. And I mean, I know that this is one of those things like we just talked about earlier, there's this wall between like content creators and celebrities and people like that and public. And I am right up there, like, in real time, I am, like, obsessed with that, like, sheriff who's, like, got all the wives and girlfriends, and I'm like, I need to know everything. And I get it, because, like, that's how media has trained me, is that I can be honest, like, there's an entitlement that you feel like I should know everything in your life. This is one of those times where it's, like, so personal because it's his kid and their issue, and someone writes a book that's not even like in their life. This isn't like someone who was like sitting next to them going through it and then wrote a book in the aftermath. It's just a person who like pulled shit out of headlines. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I am going to go ahead and fast forward us to March of 1994. So there is an incident that takes place that sticks out in people's minds when it comes to this case. So while in Rome, he had an accidental overdose with rohypnol and some champagne. He would actually end up in a coma and hospitalized, like, and it was his whole fucking thing, but he did pull through. What is interesting with this, though, is originally it was portrayed just as that, like an accidental overdose, an accident, not a suicide attempt, nothing like that. But after his death, this story comes out, this was a suicide attempt and he took 67 pills and it was like this whole dramatic thing and there's this imaginary letter that doesn't exist and all this other shit. But um, there was a doctor in one of the documentaries that was just like, uh, no. oh yeah, I was in soaked in bleach. And he was like, uh, no, not a thing. It was not that much. No, like, I don't know where the fuck that came from. You're going to hear a lot of, I don't know where the fuck that came from type of shit with the media shit because it's just ridiculous. <laughs> and it's super easy. Rohypnol is like, it's a downer. It was for sleep. Like he was using it for like a sleeping thing, like to help him chill out to sleep. Yeah. Right. And then you add alcohol on top of that, which is like a suppressant as well. Mm-hmm. So then you're like, it makes you go night-night. And then for him, it was like, you're going to stay asleep for a while. <laughs> fucked up to laugh at but yeah seriously but yeah because that's what the doctor was like he would not have made it through if it was that fucking many first of all but um you know the combo of that obviously is going to put him in the state he was in right no i mean i think it's really easy for people to do that like i was listening to another podcast with a tiktok like influencer slash youtuber who was like oh yeah i took this pain pill and then 
I took like a benzo, which is just like she took two different types of like medication, not realizing that she could have killed herself. And a doctor was like, you are so lucky that nothing fucking happened to you because that is how people die. Yeah. And it's the same thing. It's like you take a medication and drink alcohol. That's why it says on the side, like, don't consume alcohol with these. Yeah. I mean, I deal with like anxiety and depression. So like one of the medications, like you absolutely cannot drink with it. Like it's very dangerous. And thankfully, I have a very good doctor and she She's like, do you want to live? Do not do this. <laughs> I mean, it's not funny, but like, no. this is how people accidentally die. Yeah. Is they don't understand like their medications yeah. and then what they can't have with their medications. Like, for instance, there are certain antibiotics that you can't eat grapefruit with because it is a deadly combination. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I had an ear infection. They were like telling me about my antibiotics and they're like, oh, yeah, this is a very strong antibiotic. And I was like, OK. And they're like, do you know what you can and cannot have with that? I was like, I'm assuming I can't have like alcohol. They're like, and they were like, oh, no, you could have alcohol. I was like, oh, they're like, you just can't have grapefruit. It'll kill you. And I giggled because it's fucking grapefruit. And they're like, no, no, <laughs> no, really. <laughs> People don't listen to us. But like, you cannot have grapefruit extract. Like, I was like, well, I have it in lotion. They're like, maybe not use your lotion. Yeah. Like, just err the side of caution, please. Yeah. Be smart. Yeah. Just like, basically, like, we laugh, but it's just like, we use humor to cope with our trauma. But like, no, it's just people can... (laughs) It's like the truest statement of our lives. That's merch, guys. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. No, but like, my point is... Stuff like that can happen so easily, and it's scary, but it can happen so easily to anybody if you don't know the dangers to watch out for. So getting back on track, guys. So towards the end of March, Courtney and Kurt both head to rehab. They went to the Exodus Rehab Clinic in Los Angeles, but Courtney pretty much checks out immediately. She says she's going to go to a hotel to do a, quote, outpatient program, (laughs) which in reality, she was going to hang out to do more drugs and hang out with her drug dealer. I'm just like, that's not rehab. That's, I mean, great. Actually, that is rehab because a lot of rehab facilities are just like easier to get drugs in rehab than out of rehab. Well, yeah. And I mean, like they do outpatient stuff but that's that's not it that's you left and you're just pretending you are making your own rehab the courtney love rehab it's fine but when she went and did that kurt stayed and while they were apart courtney tried to call the clinic and talk to kurt 13 different times but they wouldn't let her she like called on the payphones and like i love the reenactment of this it was like every time she started talking the person's like nope I just thought it was funny. And when she starts talking with her PI she hires later on, who I'll get into in a moment, she says she only tried to call Kurt once. So pockets that and her consistencies that we'll have a novel of. I mean, yes, it's like not to defend Courtney Love, but like she was also fucking high on heroin for like days at a time. So there's like a chance she literally thought she called him one time. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I think I say that about something later. And I was like, not defending her, but like she's high as shit. So just saying. <laughs> so on March 31st, their actual nanny, Jackie Ferry, brought Francis to visit with Kurt. And the following day, Kurt checks himself out of rehab and he leaves Los Angeles on April 1st, 1994. He took Delta Flight 788 to go back to Washington because they had their home up there and some other properties and stuff. So he left without seeing or talking to Courtney, even though it was said that her hotel was like 10 minutes away from the rehab facility. And he would land in Washington at 1247 a.m., which now will put us obviously into the second. Now, I will preface 
the rest of this timeline obviously is based off what others say because, as we all know, Kurt is no longer with us to completely confirm everything. So I'm going to talk about the pretend nanny now. He's called Callie. And he said that Kurt, you know, he arrived back to the home because he was staying at the house at 1.30 a.m. And that him and his girlfriend last saw Kurt at 6.05 a.m. Also, according to Callie, he said Kurt left the house at 7.02 a.m., which I want to point out this comes out later. This doesn't come out like right away. It's also noted per the phone records that Courtney had called Callie eight times that day. So move on to the third. We're in Easter Sunday now. Courtney hires a PI named Tom Grant. She doesn't tell him this. She has a different story at first. And like I said, this was Easter Sunday. And Tom says, like, you know, most PIs probably weren't working. And he's like, we were doing a case or whatever. So we were there that day just by chance. And the call came in. He's like, I probably wasn't her first choice. She probably went to, like, the phone book and saw my ad. Who fucking knows? So he answers the phone. And at first, Tom has, like, no clue who Courtney Love is or Kurt or anything, but his investigative assistant he has, I think his name was like Ben. He's like my age, so he's like 29. And he's like, uh, hello, it's fucking Nirvana. And that's his wife. She's the lead singer of Hole. Like, how can you not know? And <laughs> I like the reenactment because to- the guy who plays Tom is just like, okay, don't care. <laughs> right. He's just like, uh, cool beans. Right. Oh, it's just funny. Um, so the original story she tells Tom is that she wants to hire him because like, I want you to look into some credit cards for me because they were stolen and blah, blah, blah. So Tom's like, okay, no problem, obviously, because that's usually not something super hard to look into. So he goes and meets with Courtney. And the first thing she says to him is, quote, you leak this to the press and I'll sue the fuck out of you, end quote. This is kind of when her story changes and she'll slowly start to say the real reason she hires him. She goes on to tell Tom that Kurt, quote, escaped rehab, bought a shotgun and was suicidal and that he had been missing and that she thinks he was with Kristen Paff, who was part of Courtney's ban at one point, but she said was also Kurt drug dealer and they were like getting too friendly type of thing and I am gonna shout out Soaked in Bleach again because in this documentary it's not like a he said she said interviewing like recounting type of thing like we hear a fuck ton of Tom's recordings because he literally recorded every phone call so we yes you see like reenactments but majority of it the recordings overlaying it or obviously they have the transcripts so they're like saying it verbatim so I just thought that was really interesting Mm -hmm. so like a lot of what presented on here is, I'm sorry, it's hard to deny because it's straight out of their mouths. They did say on the phone. Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, good on Tom Grant. The fact that he started hearing inconsistencies with Courtney, like, and it just felt weird. And he just was like, you know what? I need to record things because I need to be able to be like, no, this is what was said. And he didn't like do it illegally. He wasn't like recording her without her knowledge. I mean, granted, she was high as hell. So she probably didn't really realize. But like at the same time, he told everyone I'm recording whatever's going on. Like even when he's with them, like in person, he's recording. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Super smart to do that. So as we move into the fourth, they start talking more about she says like that she called the credit card company again. And then they told her like there had been activity. He had bought two plans plane tickets, wouldn't tell her any specifics, details, etc. And that also Kurt wanted a divorce. 
she tells Tom, on top of this, that she had planted a story in the media about her ODing and being in the hospital, but that she was okay to, quote, draw attention away from anyone figuring out Kurt was missing, and that she could just spin it to a suicide attempt because it'll bring pity, and she has a record releasing in a week, so it'll help, and it'll also scare Kurt into calling her. It's so manipulative. Mm-hmm. It's so bad. Yeah. Like, and I get that they're young. They're in their, like, mid to late 20s. But, like, it's so, oh, my God. It's disgusting. It's like, I'm going to fake kill myself, leak it to the press, and then hopefully my husband, who is avoiding me, will call me. Ugh, ridiculous. She had said that all she had to do was contact the reporter to go confirm it. And Tom was like, uh, no, don't do that. That is a bad idea. She also notes that she, Courtney, had filed a missing persons report, but she did it under Wendy's name. This is something you'll want to know big time, just saying. And Tom was like, why didn't you just do it in your name? And her excuse was that they wouldn't take her seriously if she told them who she really was because she's Courtney Love and da-da-da-da-da. And so, of course, the media puts out that it was his mom because literally everybody thought it was his mom that called and made the report, but it was Courtney. So keep that in mind. So over the next two days, more info comes out as Tom starts digging and Courtney just keeps talking. Now, during this time, it's noted that Courtney was extremely controlling over Kurt and honestly angry. So by others around her, it was said that she didn't like that Kurt was basically more successful than her. She didn't like it. And so much so that Kurt actually ended up turning down Lollapalooza basically because of her. And in turn, this was him turning down about $9.5 million. So, of course, she bitches about that like a fuck ton. Yeah, it's like she's mad because they offered it to him. So then he turns it down so that she could take it. But like they weren't going to pay her the same amount. Like they weren't going to pay Holes the same amount as Nirvana. Holes is popular, but it didn't have the same notoriety as Nirvana. Right, exactly. So obviously they get to like talking about where Kurt would be. And Tom is like, do you think he's in Washington? I really want to go up there. Like, I think we should go. And she has the excuse that she has business to do there in L.A. So she can't be bothered. And she doesn't want Kurt to know that she's looking for him. And like, I'm sorry if my husband was missing and suicidal, I would absolutely drop every motherfucking single thing I had to go try to help him and find him and whatever I could to make sure my husband was okay. Right. But then again, like, you know, I'm sorry, you can't I'm I don't care that she's on fucking heroin. We're just gonna <laughs> write that off like every fucking time. Like, yes, I get it. You're out of your fucking mind. But it's like, she has to be called out. I'm sorry. No, I get it. It's like, it's like one of those things where you're like, well, she's not in her right mind. So she's not making smart decisions. But like, at the same time, she's like irrationally calling him like 13 times and then calling Callie eight times, but like, won't get on a plane. Yeah, you'll hear more from me later. Yeah. You know, she gives Tom some info, like being like, hey, these are his aliases he uses when he goes to hotels, right? And one of them is Bill Bailey. And she says to him that Kurt loves the best of the best and would want to stay at the fanciest of hotels. So eventually, by April 6th, Tom is like, look, we haven't found him. I'm going to Seattle with or without you. So no spoilers. He goes without Courtney. He tells her, like, don't tell anyone I'm going up there because I don't need anybody tipping Kurt off because if he do, he'll bolt, obviously, because he just left L.A. and went who knows where. And she can't keep her mouth shut, obviously. She ends up telling Callie and Tom's like, what the fuck? I just told you not to do that. And she's like, oh, don't worry. He won't tell anybody. It's fine. Except for, like, he's the last known person to have seen Kurt. Exactly. So Tom flies up there and gets there at 11.30 p.m. 
After his arrival, he goes and picks up Dylan Carlson, who is said to have been Kurt's best friend from Dylan's apartment. And the two of them head to like a cafe, diner type of thing to grab some food and discuss like what's the game plan to look for Kurt. While there, Dylan tells Tom, you know, the reality of the gun purchase because it wasn't what Courtney was saying. He tells Tom that him and Kurt went to purchase it on March 30th before he went into rehab. And the reason he wanted to get it was not because he was suicidal, but because he had some recent burglary issues at their home and he wanted some form of protection. Now, the other part of this is apparently Kurt had had two firearms confiscated in the last 10 months. So he asked Dylan if he would purchase it in his name and Dylan tells him yes. He also tells Tom that, quote, trust me, if he was suicidal, I would have never let him get a shotgun, end quote. And he also gives the, you know, the rundown that I've already went through on the Rome incident. You know, like Kurt had it while he was like for sleeping and all of that and things like that. You know, no suicide attempt. And along with this, that there was just like some other red flags coming up for him. It was the fact that not even just this like erratic behavior and whatnot, but it was also her focus was like on her money, on her career, on things going on with her, Kurt being a cheater versus if Kurt was alive and okay. So after the diner, after they ate, they went to a drug dealer's apartment over on Capitol Hill and like a ton of hotels on the Aurora Strip where Kurt was known to have been from time to time. Now, Tom mentions to Dylan like what Courtney told him about the like the best hotels and all that shit. And Dylan's like, uh, what? No, the fuck? No. He's like, no, no, he'll stay in like any kind of like small sleazy motel. Like he likes to lay low. He don't give a fuck type of thing, basically. If you were a celebrity that people recognize why would you go stay at like, you know, the fancy ass Ritz Carlton where paparazzi hang out? Why wouldn't you just go to like the crack motel six and get a room where people are just going to be like, "Mm, you do you boo. Right, exactly. So while they're like driving around and stuff, you know, Tom is like, should we check in with Wendy up in Aberdeen? Like, what do you think? And Dylan's like, no, Kurt definitely wouldn't go there. Like they don't get along. And so Tom's like, okay. So the night's moving on. So we're at 2.15. So we put us into April 7th at this point. Because like I said, he got there like a little before midnight. They went to their Lake Washington house. And the plan was for Tom to wait in the car while Dylan went up to check, you know, because like if Kurt was there, Tom basically didn't want Kurt to know like all the things that were going on. Because if he was there chilling and okay, it's like, okay, cool. And then like dip. But about five minutes later, Dylan comes back to the car saying nobody was there. And Tom had said, like, okay, well, like, what the fuck took so long if no one was there? Like, that's weird, but whatever. And so at this point, they went over to a payphone, because keep in mind, early 90s, and they call Courtney. And she was at a woman named Rosemary Carroll's house in Los Angeles. I'll dive into more of her in a bit. Dylan talked with Courtney and Tom told him to tell her to like call the alarm company to be like, hey, can you like turn it off so that way we could like get into the house without setting it off and causing a whole fucking thing. So they do and they go back and then they go through an unlocked kitchen window. And while they're looking around the house, Dylan says, quote, I've never seen the house this clean before. And one of the TVs was still on in one of the bedrooms upstairs. And like, you know, it was obviously had recently been in. But Dylan was like, no, this is Callie's room. Kurt wouldn't have been in here. 
So they look in Kurt's room and nothing. And if I'm remembering right, I believe this is when they found the pills and that's like, we're talking about it some more and Dylan ends up taking him and Tom's like, oh, like, should we like give him to Courtney? Should we, what should we do with them? Whatever. And he's like, no, I'll take him. It's fine. I'll deal with it. And at this time, Tom asks Dylan, he's like, is there anywhere else we should check on the property in the house? Because like, obviously you're familiar with it. I'm not. And he says, no, pocket that shit. And as we know, there's an additional room above the garage called the greenhouse, but Tom was not told about it. And it was dark, you know, like I said, it was after 2 a.m. It was raining, you know, so he didn't see it. And people tried to criticize him for this, but there's an investigator who later like tests this out to see if it's legit, like could have been missed. And he confirms like, yeah, it's not anything shitty on Tom's part. This could easily happen. So anyway, they load up and then he drops Dylan off so that both can get some rest for a few hours. Later that day, he goes back and picks Dylan up again and, you know, they continue their search. And as the evening approaches, they start heading towards Carnation, which is like a small town about 30 miles east of Seattle. Kurt and Courtney owned a property out there with a cabin and this other house and stuff. So he wanted to go look, but it was dark. So Dylan was saying like, oh, I can't remember exactly where it is, like type of thing. And it was like raining. So Tom was like, okay, fuck this. We'll come back in the daytime and maybe that'll be easier. So again, they stop at another payphone and Dylan makes a phone call. And when he comes back, he tells Tom, Courtney's had some trouble. She got arrested and is in the hospital. So eventually, Dylan does talk to Courtney, you know, to be like, what the fuck should we do now type of thing? What do you want us to do? Blah, blah, blah. Where should we go? And Courtney wanted them to go back to the house and look for the shotgun. She said it was in some hidden compartment in their closet, which is weird because it was like, why wasn't this mentioned earlier when they were at the house the first time? And like, apparently Dylan knew exactly where to go. So it's like, why didn't he look at this earlier? So it's like, weird, weird, weird. All kinds of weird things happening. And also, like, Courtney wasn't with him when he got the new shotgun. So it's kind of like, how would you know that's where he put it? Exactly. Dylan was the one with him. And also during this day, earlier in the afternoon, it was noted that Kelly had told friends he was leaving for L.A. And basically, Tom was trying to, like, get a hold of him at this point. He's like, I think Kelly was avoiding me, essentially. So back at 9.45 p.m., They get to the house and they find a note from Callie, which had been placed on the main stairway. They had just been in the house last night and it was not, you know, was not fucking there. They would have obviously seen it because it was like on the stairs. And basically, um, if you know about this case, like you've heard this letter, it's the one where he wrote it to Kurt saying, I can't believe you managed to be in the house without me noticing. You're a fucking asshole for not calling Courtney. It's that letter. And Tom says, I feel like this letter was more placed here for me to find rather than actually Kurt's. Like, it seemed kind of phony. And I mentioned Rosemary Carroll, right? She was very close with them. She was Courtney's lawyer. She was Francis's godmother. She was friends with them. Very, very close to Courtney and Kurt. And also Callie, because he was with them all the time, too. And Tom is like, he starts talking to her more and more as this goes on. And she literally agrees with Tom and is like, that fucking letter, like, yeah, it sounds like something he'd write. But at the same time, it seems fucking fake, like not legit. Something's up with it. So later, Callie tries to say he was hardly in the house from like Monday on. He was rarely there, da 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 da. And it's like, okay, cool. But like, if you were there, why would you be so shocked you didn't see him type of thing? Like, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. 
There's a lot of things in this case that people say, and then when they get questioned, they just, like, stare blankly at them. Like, what? Yeah. Oh, I said that? Like, literally, there's something Courtney gets called out on later, and she's like, oh, okay. So, Friday morning, now April 8th. This morning, Tom and Dylan were headed out to Carnation because, like I said, they wanted to wait till the daytime, right? So, they had stopped to fill up for gas. Dylan went and made another phone call. He would tell Tom that the authorities had found a body on the Cobain property. And they loaded up, they turned on the radio, and they soon would hear over the radio that it was, in fact, Kurt's body. Tom says that Dylan showed, like, no reaction, which, which to be fair, can mean a few things. One, he's, like, in shock or on drugs, or he knew, and so it wasn't shocking. Could be a number of things. They also heard on the radio, like, in the report that Kurt's body had been found in the greenhouse, which Tom was like, what the fuck's the greenhouse? We didn't look in no greenhouse. What is that? And Dylan was like, oh, it's this, like, little room above the garage. And Tom's like, okay, well, why the fuck didn't we go look in there? Like, what if we had found him? Could have helped him? Whatever. And he's like, oh, no, it's just, like, this dingy little room. Like, there's some lumber in there, you know, blah, blah, blah. Trying to rationalize brushing it off. Which is, like, even weirder that that's where he would kill himself is in a room that like nobody uses right and i'm sorry this is supposed to be kurt's best friend i'm sorry if you were fucking missing whether i believe you're suicidal or not if you're fucking missing and you have these like you have a secret little greenhouse i'm gonna look in every motherfucking inch of every single place for you i'm not just gonna be like oh no don't look in there it's fine she's not there no fuck that i'm sorry I would be in Alaska so fast. Yeah. Her husband's head would be spinning. Like, what are you doing here? Like, finding my friend. Like, you're obviously not helping. Figure it out. (laughs) I get it. Like, I'm not in the situation, but it's like, I can, I don't know. I just feel like people, you can put yourself in that situation. You can think about it. Like, how are you just going to stand by and just be like, I don't know. Kurt's just running around with a shotgun. It's fine. No. Ugh. People, people, people. How many things in this case can you use one crutch for? I'm sorry. Like, Jesus. And at what point do you just sober up for a little bit? Because, like, that's the thing is they could sober up from, like, time to time. If my husband was missing, whether I was divorcing him or not, I would be like, you know what? I owe it to this person to, like, get my shit together for five minutes to make sure that they're okay. Right. And well, and also, too, like, it's the father of her child. Right. Her baby, baby child. Yeah. So after this, all this comes out, you know, they like stop somewhere else or I don't even know if they've even really left the gas station, to be honest with you, I can't remember. But Tom calls like his assistant that was working with him earlier on this. And Ben says that the credit card company said that somebody kept trying to use Kurt's card as early as that morning on the 8th, just literally hours before his body was found. Now, let's go ahead and kind of switch gears a little bit and let's talk about the discovery of Kurt's body. Gary Smith, he was an electrician. He ended up seeing Kurt's body in the greenhouse through a window. He had been there because he was installing security lighting for the property. He said that at first he thought it was a mannequin, but then realized, no, it was a dead body. So, of course, he radios it in. Authorities are called. They come. Kurt will be found laying on his back with his left hand around the barrel of a 20-gauge Remington Model 11 semi-automatic shotgun. 
So one of the first responders, his name is John Fisk. He was in Soaked in Bleach. And I like when they have these people that were actually there. Like, it's always great when they have, like, other, you know, cops and stuff, like, analyzing cases. But I think it's very important to have these people who are actually there. So one of the things the media tried to say, and I believe probably had Seattle PD influence on, is they tried to say he was barricaded inside this greenhouse and that it was this whole thing and he was locked up in there and this dramatic stuff and that there was a stool blocking the doorway. But John's like, no, when we first got there, like that stool was on the other side of the room. None of that was happening. And he had dealt with, of course, other crime scenes and stuff before. But at first he was like, it wasn't what I expected. Kurt's head wasn't as badly damaged as what I thought it should have been with the shotgun wound. So he's like, just kind of threw him off a little bit. But I started talking with Matt about all this because he watched some of this with me. And basically with the type of shell casing, it was a 20 gauge shell. There's a chance that it wouldn't cause as much damage because there's like different kinds. Like, you know, it's not always like in the movies where it just huge damage and wreckage. So I know like in the early conversations of this, some people tried to be like, well, was he even shot with that gun? Like, yes, whatever happened to him, that weapon was what was used. Now, Kurt was found with the shotgun laying upside down. And like I said, his left hand was around the barrel. And when they talk about his grip on it, it's called a cadaveric spasm. And basically, this is a form of muscular stiffening that only occurs in death. And this was like super important because when they're talking about it and all their like forensic science goodness in the documentary, they're like, this is the exact moment of death. And they say... This all seems straightforward until you take into account that the shotgun shell was found to Cobain's left side, opposite of where one would expect to find the shell on his right side, end quote. Seattle PD comes up with this, like, crazy-ass explanation, which I'm like, Jesus, fuck, that was, like, not even necessary. And other people are like, that wasn't even necessary and stupid. So basically, they were like, okay, the gun was fired the right side up, but then it flipped. Which, again, I asked Matt his thoughts and on Tom's side of things, not saying like he has a side, but you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. That like this was impossible and blah, blah, blah. But like we like to have both sides of things when we can, even if we don't agree with everything. So when we watch the simulation of what, quote, happened, it's kind of propped up on Kurt's foot, which Matt was like, okay, yes. If he's holding on the barrel, obviously he's not clenching it like super, super bad. Like at first, like obviously the trigger would be what he was focusing on to reach, like once he has it in the general direction. But once the trigger's pulled, obviously he will fall back, you know, because he was found on his back. So that, that lines up. And this would cause the gun to spin because it is heavy. And the other thing is you don't die instantly. So the reaction of like grabbing it after you're shot would make sense because if he grabs it and then he dies, the vice grip would be there. So like there's that split second for it to turn. You can't see what I'm doing, but Jessica can. (laughs) So, like, the shell would be where it was supposed to be if this is what happened. The thing with the Seattle PD, they were like, it bounced off something, and then that's how it went over and sailed to the other side. And they're like, but nothing was there to bounce off of. (laughs) Which was, like, the weird thing. Like, they made this, like, total... Like, a lot of the conspiracy theories that come out of this is based off of, like, the kind of ridiculous shit that Seattle PD put out for their, like their statement and it's like no it didn't have to the shell didn't have to bounce off of something there are other things that could have happened like tara said like you don't die right away like we don't know how long it took him from the time like the gun is triggered to his actual like demise he could have like moved his hand 
And it could have rotated. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's so many, like, because obviously, like, we're never, unless stuff happens, like, you know, we'll probably never know. But, like, there's definitely different possibilities, basically. Right. So it was just kind of like, they just scrambled for this, like, crazy thing. And it's like, literally, if you just had someone who knew what the fuck they were looking at, they probably could have came up with what I just fucking told you. Jesus Christ. I honestly think that, like, Seattle was so synonymous with, like, the grunge music and, like, that kind of, like, light, the grunge style and that came along with a lot of drug usage and Kurt Cobain was literally like the poster child of that you know he was the poster child for like that lifestyle and here they have it they're like oh it's probably best that we start talking about it like oh he committed suicide and like you know the drug use got to him to be like a warning and I think that they just rushed it oh yeah well and then the other problem was they were saying some of the first responding officers out there were like new patrolmen who most definitely should not have fucking been out there because they didn't know what the fuck they were doing right so obviously Tom and Dylan they end up going over there because Tom's like I've obviously been investigating this on my own so I have useful information so he's like can I talk to the detective in charge Blah, blah, blah. Because, like, before Tom became a PI, he was like a detective or whatever himself. So, like, he knows how this stuff goes. Yeah, with the LA County Sheriff's Department. And if I was Seattle PD, And like someone was on the case and they were like, I'm a former sheriff's office detective. I have been on this case for like at this point, at least five days, Mm -hmm. five to six days. Like I'm here to, you know, help you. I would have been like, get him over here. Let's let's take some information down. Yep. But uh, nope, that is the opposite of what happens. The detective's like, nap, get out of here. I don't have any interest to talk to you. Goodbye. So there was this other like chief of police and this other guy they were just like exactly what jessica said like we would have instantly tried to talk to them and if we couldn't talk to them right that second we would not let them leave until we talked to them but nope not that guy he was just like get the fuck out of my face bye the one guy was like i would have handcuffed him and been like don't you go anywhere like you're mine because <laughs> i mean at this point in time at least as far as like suspects granted they had in their mind already ruled this a suicide but like you know foul play wise i would have been like this guy showed up out of nowhere claiming to be this like former la county sheriff's detective and he's supposedly been on the case with this guy's wife or you know he could potentially have killed kurt we don't know and the fact that this detective was like i love the guy that they had in the reenactment from him because he was like such a crotchety frog looking man he was like get the fuck away like nobody has time for you (laughs) They casted that role well. Right? Oh, God. On top of, like, you know, Kurt, the weapon and things like that, other things that they found, they found, like, this little box that had, I think, like, a syringe and a spoon and some, like, drug paraphernalia in it. They also found a suicide note, which we'll get into later. And most importantly that I just have to mention and squash now. So his wallet was there. Now, the media tried to say that it was flipped open with his ID out. No, that was not the case. What had happened was they had taken it out to take a picture of it so they could ID who he was. Like the first responders, law enforcement and stuff. So no, Kurt, or if you think somebody else was there, nobody else did that. It was first responder law enforcement who had done that. 
Also, like, to be honest, like, this is Kurt fucking Cobain. Right. I mean, you had to live under a rock if you didn't know who Nirvana was. Right. And I get, like, they may not know, like, him right away. Mm -hmm. But, like, once they were like, oh, a celebrity lives here. And even the officer who was there, he knew him by his face because it wasn't like his face was missing. Right. Exactly. He was recognizable. Even in, like, one of the reports, they were like, it looked like his hair was brushed. Which would probably have been a red flag because his hair was always messy (laughs) out of like, wait, who brushed Kurt's hair? Right. So at this time, Courtney talks to Tom and all of this. And for some reason, she's trying to get him to like talk to the press. But he's like, "Eh, no, thank you. So he obviously is getting nowhere with Seattle PD. So he's like, I'm going to come back down to L.A. So he goes back. So now re-enter Rosemary, who I've mentioned a few times at this point. Tom and her would meet up on April 13th because, like I said, she was kind of like thinking stuff was kind of sus, especially with like Courtney. And she just kept saying to Tom, like, he wasn't suicidal. Kurt was not suicidal. Like, she was insistent. And she then tells him about how Courtney had called her a couple weeks prior to this and told her she needed to find the, quote, meanest, most vicious divorce lawyer she could find. Also, when having this conversation, she asked Rosemary if their prenup could be voided or had any loopholes, things like that. And Rosemary also told him that Kurt also called her during this time as well. And according to Rosemary, Kurt hadn't completed his will yet, and he told her that he wanted Courtney taken out of it. She just thought it was weird that Courtney wouldn't let her or anybody, and because like I said, Rosemary was like super close to her, wouldn't let anyone see the suicide note. She was just like, nope, 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 nope. Because like, obviously, they're trying to help her, and she's just like, nope, nope, nope. And Tom starts talking to her about Courtney, too. And he's like, yeah, like she told me her excuse that she couldn't come up originally was because like she had all this business going on in L.A. And Rosemary's like, that's bullshit. She and I have nothing going on. Like she's fucking lying. Also, it comes up about a phone call. Remember that Dylan obviously called Courtney multiple times to check in. And she said that one of those times Courtney was actually, you know, like at Rosemary's house. And she said she heard Courtney say, be sure to check the greenhouse, which as we know, never happened. So now that we know that after like Dylan on the phone and all that, Courtney left and she went back to the hotel. And while she was there, she called 911. The first reports say that Courtney was overdosing. She was actually later arrested and Rosemary like had stuff being like, no, look, like this is another one of her fucking bullshit stunts. Like she planned this yet again. This was not an accident type of thing. And after, like, all this shit happens, Tom's like, okay, I'm gonna go back to Seattle now because I need to see, like, what the fuck is going on. So he does. But Rosemary is like, you cannot tell Courtney all of this stuff about me telling you, like, I think she's suspect. I need to stay out of it. Blah, blah, blah. So once Tom's back in Seattle, he is like, okay, I got to get a copy of this suicide note. I just, I have to. I got to figure out a way to get it from her. So he's talking to her and like they're in her room and she's just like laying on the bed and you know, brings it up. And he says, quote, I heard you read the note on TV the other day. I was confused about something. It sounded like the note said, I'm lying here in bed. If Kurt was lying on the bed when he wrote the note, why was the bed so neat when I came here the other night? It didn't look like anyone had been on this bed. And to this, Courtney replied, no, Tom, I was lying in the bed. I was lying on the bed recording the message to Kurt's fans. 
And Tom responds back to her saying, are you sure that's what you said? I got the impression it was Kurt saying he was lying on the bed. And Courtney says, no, here, I'll show you. And then she like reaches to get it. She has it like under the pillow and pulls it out and she gives it to him. And Courtney then says, it's only a copy. The police have the original. Then Tom's like looking at it and stuff. And he's like, oh, I can't really read very well without my glasses. And oh, darn, I forgot them. Can I just like make a copy of this so I can look at it later when I have my glasses? <laughs> and she falls for it. And she's like, sure, go for it. Whatever. Don't care. So some other things I would like to point out shortly after Kurt's discovery is that with this investigation, obviously like tons of people in the field have looked at it. They're like, eh, this is all problematic because one thing was that it was literally deemed a suicide the same day he was found before the autopsy, before they found actual drugs in his system, before they had straight up proof of that. And all the LEOs and stuff on this were just like, no, that was a big no-no. Like, they didn't have to jump to that it was a homicide or anything, but they should have left it as a death investigation until they could definitively say it's a suicide, not just be like, shut the book. And like, yes, he was found with the shotgun and had the wound to his head, but it's like, still, still. Someone could have put that under him. He could have been fighting for the gun and they pulled the trigger and... That he would have had it in his hand. Right. Number of things. So another thing is that Kurt was cremated just six days after his body was found. Not even a week. And again, it was said, like, this should not have been allowed until, like, they actually investigated it and took a look. You know, not just, like, whatever, bye. And the crime scene in the greenhouse was not left intact. Everything was torn down. Like, I think the whole greenhouse itself, too, right? Like, they ended up taking it, like, got demolished. The whole thing. Yeah, everything just fucking gone. Mm -hmm. They also waited 30 days to process the fingerprints on the shotgun. And I'm gonna squash, I'm gonna kill dreams again. So there's rumors that go around that the shotgun was given to Courtney and it was melted down, blah, blah, blah. But this was actually proven false in 2016 when pictures were released. Some crime scene pictures and then also current pictures taken of the weapon. Right. The detective who's like in charge of that department posed with the shotgun. So it's either A, I mean, I it was definitely like perpetuated by Courtney that she'd gotten the gun back from what I have read and that they melted it down to get rid of it because it was evil or whatever. I don't know. I'm just speaking on my ass right now. But then like, so it's either that happened and the Seattle Police Department went out and bought an identical gun and like, we're like, whoa, this is the shotgun or it never got melted down, which I don't think it was. I think because it would have it would have honestly just been it would have stayed in the chain of custody. Right. At the same time, it's just like, it's so annoying that it's like, you know, those fuckers read or heard these rumors and they're just like, nope, it's fine. We'll just wait like 20 years and then be like, see, bitches, we had it. And it's like stupid. But again, it's like, I don't know why they waited 20 years when that came out. I'd have been like, no, we still have the gun. It's in the evidence lockers. It's like with the other stuff from it. Exactly. That's why I was like, I don't like I literally wrote that in my notes. I'm like, why the fuck did it take them so long? Like, what the fuck? Honestly, I don't think they cared. I think they were like, it's a suicide. It's done. I don't give a shit. Exactly. I think that was 100% their fucking attitude, which is just disgusting. And then obviously, uh, the only person who could access Kurt's autopsy was Courtney. Because a lot of times with stuff like stuff's not sealed, you can request it. Nope, not this. So it's in the hands of Courtney, which you can guess how that's going to go. But back to our timeline. I just wanted to kind of point some sketchiness out for you guys. What I was reading, this was April 13th. Tom, Courtney, and one of her friends had headed out to the Carnation property that I mentioned earlier that Dylan like got lost, couldn't fucking find 
mind, whatever. And then they found Kurt. So he talks about how she's acting odd. She asks to stop for snacks twice. She gets confused and they get like lost. Like she's like, oh God, I don't know. I don't know. And he feels like she was trying to kind of like delay them getting there because like they had just built recently on this land she had. So like she had been out there. So it's like, how could you forget so much? But then it's like, well, it's back to that same party line we have. If she was high as shit, like she could have easily got lost. So it's like it could go either fucking way with that, to be honest with you on that. So anyways, while they're there, there's like two different house cabin things. One's like described as a modest cabin. And this was said to be where Kurt actually felt most comfortable. Like it had, it was like a more humble place, like more homey, you know, that kind of thing. And the other was like a more updated what you would expect house. So Courtney tried to convince Tom at first that Kurt, once he got into Seattle, that that's where he was. He had to have went to that cabin. There was like no evidence that anybody had been in there. There was actually like nobody had been in there for a fucking while because like Tom talks about how there's like moss growing. He's like, it would have been disturbed if somebody opened the door and was like doing stuff in here. And no, it was just like all overgrown. So like no one had been into the cabin part for a while. So they go over to the other house. They start looking around and they find some things. So one of the things is they find a sleeping bag and some cigarette butts. And she's like, oh, maybe we should take these in for prints. And Tom's like, okay, cool. Let's let's fucking do that. And then there's this one point where Courtney and I think her name was Kat. They went to like a different part of the house and then they come back like five or so minutes later. And she's like, oh, look, I found this syringe. Like he was here doing drugs and, you know, things like that. And Tom's like, okay, like what the fuck? But like he starts seeing there's other things in the house that kind of show him again, like no one had been there. Literally, her friend goes into one of the bathrooms and there was like these five dead rats and they were like rancid and disgusting. And so it's like, obviously nobody was fucking in here. So his wheels start turning and he's like, did they bring this like she had you know purse whatever they could have just easily have had it pulled it out and been like oh look what I found you know because it was like I also think it was also if I remember right in like a ziploc bag or something weird so he was just like what the fuck okay but they're also like notorious druggies right so it could have been from anybody their vacation home would have syringes right so he's just like uh that doesn't prove like jack shit sorry And then it's, like, weird because, like, later, I guess, she starts talking about how she has this, like, cast of his hand or something. I don't know exactly if it was, like, you know, where you, like, dip your hand. I don't know if it was, like, that or, like, what it was exactly. But Tom was like, oh, depending on whatever they used for it, like, we could maybe do, like, not silicone. It was something else. Like, duplicate his prints or at least try to, to, like, compare to the stuff you want to have printed to see if there's similarities. Apparently, as soon as Courtney heard that, she just didn't bring up about getting the other stuff printed at all. After that excursion, they go back to the lake house and Tom is like, look, I want to talk to Callie. This is the last person who saw him. I want to talk to Dylan more because this is also another person like who had kind of seen him last, you know, like before rehab and is his best friend and stuff. And then Courtney's like, oh, Callie's already left, like because Tom didn't know Callie had left because like I mentioned, he left. And she's like, um, I think he went to rehab in like Georgia or El Paso. And then she's like, oh, wait a minute. Never mind. He he's back in L.A. And so Tom's like, OK, uh, all right then. And she's like, but don't worry, I'll get him back here ASAP. And he's like, OK, sure you will. OK. 
And he's like, well, we know Dylan's fucking local, so uh, get him here because obviously this is, like, important. We need to figure out what the fuck happened to Kurt. And so, like, Courtney goes and wherever in the house and they're waiting for Dylan and they're just, like, chilling. And I don't know where the fuck Tom was waiting, but, like, Dylan comes and, like, Tom didn't see him arrive, basically. Then, like, he's just sitting around and he's like, okay, what the fuck? He was supposed to be here already. So he goes and asks somebody else who was there, like, is Dylan coming? What is the deal? And they're like, oh, he's been here. He's he's upstairs with Courtney. Didn't you know he arrived like five minutes ago, 10 minutes ago, whatever. And so Tom's like, what the fuck? Okay. So he's like, can you go tell them to come down here? And he said it was like another 20 minutes. And then after that, him and Courtney came down and it was obvious he was high as shit. Like he had obviously been up there doing heroin. He was like totally out of it. And Tom's like, what the fuck, Courtney? You knew I needed to talk to him like that couldn't fucking wait. What the hell? And she's just like, meh, whatever, you know, that's fine. And so, like, uh, in the reenactment, you see him, like, try to talk to him and stuff. And, like, obviously, dude's out of it. So it's, like, useless. If I had been Tom, I would have been like, okay, cool. We're going to sit here till you fucking sober up. Exactly, right? Like, what the fuck, man? I would have been like, I'm not leaving. You're not leaving. Nobody's fucking leaving until you've sobered up and I get straight answers. Exactly, exactly. So while all these things are going on, Tom, like I said, he got the copy of the suicide note. So he had it looked at it like some handwriting specialist right and it was really weird with this because at first apparently one of them was trying to be like courtney wrote it not callie and he's like that makes no fucking sense she wasn't even in washington like how the fuck would that get here in time and like place perfectly and all of that and it was like this back and forth thing but then it turns out like one of the specialists is like okay i'm full of shit basically at this time tom was like relaying the information to the police they were kind of like oh why are you telling this? this is so stupid and then literally when he goes like look one of my people fucked up like just straighten it out to do the right thing the cop literally says to him like it doesn't fucking matter it's a suicide blah 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 and tom's like okay cool fuck you and realizes like they aren't obviously gonna fucking do anything but what's really good about this like obviously since then this has been looked at multiple times and what has helped was when courtney had been like around rosemary she left this backpack there and they found this piece of paper in like a journal or something in the backpack and it was like essentially when this like handwriting expert in soaked in bleach looked at it they're like yeah no they were using this to practice copying kurt or copying the letters and stuff it was like little um like the alphabet and stuff like that so they took both and they looked at it and things like that and they're like yeah it looks like somebody either traced it traced his writing or was like really good at copying his writing they definitely i don't know all that crazy stuff that'd be really interesting to go to school for side note (laughs) like become like a handwriting expert i always think that's so fascinating but yeah basically they're like yeah don't know how legit this actually is so all of this going on plus all this like media circus all this crazy shit tom's like okay enough's enough so on may 18th of 1994 he decides to write courtney a letter and i have a copy of the letter and i am gonna read it and this is where we are going to end things for today with this case so tom writes Dear Courtney, I'm sure as you know by now, my investigation has been somewhat more active than you might be aware of. The purpose of this letter is to clarify my position regarding our working relationship. You may recall our trip to Carnation on Thursday, April 14th. I mentioned during the drive I was going to turn over some rocks that I wasn't sure you wanted turned over. I asked you if you wanted me to continue digging. Kat, who was in the back seat, said, Oh yeah, she wants to know everything. You responded, yeah, Tom, do whatever it takes. Your instructions were clear, so in the days and weeks that followed, I proceeded to do whatever it takes. 
As the investigation continued, my attempts to get the truth often seemed to be deliberately hindered. While reading some of the articles being written in newspapers and magazines, I discovered the information being released to the press was inaccurate and often clearly misleading. I considered the circumstances surrounding your husband's death to be highly suspicious. My investigation has exposed a number of inconsistencies in the facts of this case as well as many contradictions in sound logic and common sense. I'm required to report such findings as these to the police, so on Friday, April 15th, I spoke with Sergeant Cameron about some of what I learned so far. As I've experienced in past cases, police detectives don't often welcome the work of outside investigators. I learned that it's somewhat idealistic and naive to think the truth might be more important than professional pride. I've decided to continue working on this case until I see its conclusion, without additional charge. Attached, you will find an invoice which accounts for the charges billed for our services, including time and expenses. As you can see, prior to my return to Seattle on April 13th, these charges exceeds the retainer amount. However, please consider your bill paid in full. There will be no further charges. As I pursue the truth regarding the events surrounding your husband's death, your cooperation and assistance will be appreciated but not required. Sincerely, Tom Grant. And you guys could probably hear me. I'm fucking losing my voice now because I've talked forever. <laughs> this is where we are going to end things because once this letter comes out, Courtney may not take to it so well. You guys will see. Jessica will be picking up in part two for us and we will dive into the conspiracy and craziness behind this case. So with that, I hope you guys enjoyed Feel free to let us know your thoughts so far on this case on social media. We love hearing your guys' opinions, but we are going to say goodbye for now, and we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.